Support for Pivot comes from BetterHelp. How do you know when your social battery is running on empty? Maybe you get a little snippy with your friends or perhaps Scott Galloway. Or maybe you just fantasize about canceling plans, creating one excuse after. You're fantasizing about me? No, 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 never. You're fantasizing about me. Again? Again? Not once. Not once. I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right. Get off my ad right now. All right. Canceling plans, creating one excuse after another, why you have to stay in. I do that to Scott all the time. It's not easy to keep track of how much socializing is right for you. Therapy can help you build more awareness of what you need and when. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy with licensed professionals. Scheduling is convenient and finding a therapist suited to your style is quick and easy. And we all know Scott Galloway needs therapy. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. You can visit betterhelp.com slash pivot today. Get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pivot. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Scott Galloway. Um, I'm in San Francisco, Scott. Where are you? I'm in Aspen. I spent the weekend in L.A., and mm-hmm. we had a wonderful time. I told my youngest we could do whatever he wanted, so mm-hmm. we did two malls. We did mm-hmm. the Century City Mall, which is one of my favorite malls, and I yeah. kind of grew up there. And then we did The Grove. Where Barbie was filmed, but anyway, go ahead. There you go. Um, then we did The Grove. We saw two movies, Mission Impossible and Oppenheimer. We mm-hmm. Did In and Out Burger. We did Universal Hollywood. All of mm-hmm. this in about thirty six hours. We had a really you know, a wonderful. I'm at. I was just telling uh, our producer Lara. I'm at that point where the end of my kids being kids is now painfully mm-hmm. visible. So I'm really yeah. enjoying this kind of oh, stuff. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm here in San Francisco with Alex, who's eighteen. We have we're on a little mom son kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then next week, I'm going to do one with uh, with Louis uh, before they both go away to their various and sundry fall activities. Louis to Argentina, yeah, but it's and not, Alex to Michigan. But yeah, it's not it's not like the wonder of you know, oh my God, they put chocolate on this ice cream. It's like there's definitely something about twelve. Mm-hmm. I mean, he will literally he finds things just so fascinating. That no, did little things and that kind yeah. of childhood wonder, if you if no. you will, or I don't know. You've read Alex. You know Alex. He talks about the most esoteric things and like he's like, "Did you know about this particular factual thing?" And, and then don't be so on. fucking mature. I'm trying to be I'm melancholy. I'm just saying, here. don't be melancholy. They have you have new relationships with your sons. It's really nice. You you have to develop relationships over time. You have to, like you should be thinking about our relationship, for example. Um, but let me just say, speaking of relationships, you know what I did this weekend? Why don't you ask me what I did this? Weekend? What did you do? This Amanda weekend? and I went to salsa lessons. We're t- I gave it to her for her birthday. I hate dancing, oh, you and told she me about this. loves yeah. it. And we went again, and I'm not bad. I wasn't bad this weekend. I was, that I was shocks okay. me that you're better than you thought at something. That shocks me. Uh, no, I just that didn't think I shocks said. Me. Yeah. You and I should do salsa dancing together. I will we lead. Would, it would look like it would literally. I told you this. It would look like Ichabod Crane and Irve Villachez 
uh-huh. having an epileptic attack at the same time. It no, just, I think we'd be And by fine. the way, I'm sure that triggers the National Epilepsy Protection League. Yeah, okay. You're getting so Ron DeSantis these days. Everything is woke, DeSantis. woke, woke. He got COVID getting, right. Oh <laughs> that should be a tagline. His tagline. But then he didn't. But then he didn't. But then he didn't. But he's not. Oh, he you read that article that. about yeah. the Times. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. He's just, he shifts back and forth depending on what the way the wind blows. His, his, uh, his campaign is disaster right now apparently from all the different stories i've read um but we should we should do things in our relationship we should find something we can do together rock climbing perhaps i don't know something together. or we could just have a podcast and make that, a shit ton um, of money all right, how about okay, that we'll do that how all right that? okay i just uh, want those we were special in Cannes together we were in the yes, south we were. of france did we have together. a good time we had a good time we, we had a nice, a nice time, time with you swimming with my, my favorite anyway. moment was when we were at the hotel du cap and we were with mm-hmm. amanda and you mm-hmm. just looked at me like what you are, a six-year-old mother of two infants. Or, mm-hmm. And you go, you said to me, can you take the kids to the pool and just leave me alone for like 30 <laughs> minutes? You looked at me like, <laughs> you literally looked at me like at your last wish. Uh, like, it's true. You're like, it's true. we're, we're, they we're are. friends. I can say this to you. And you said yeah. it out of earshot of Amanda. You're like, take the kids somewhere and just keep <laughs> everyone away from me for 30 minutes. <laughs> it, was, have, it was true. Let me have some rosé. I don't even drink wine, but I'm going to order it I, and just I lay knew. here. You need that moment as a, a parent of Oh, you need kids. a lot of those moments. I took the kids to visit a, a uh, an employee of mine who had just had a baby and let Amanda have mm-hmm. a little of that time. She went and got her nails done, uh, which was nice. Yeah, you need those moments. Anyway, we have a lot to 100%. talk about besides our relationship. We'll talk about Twitter's rebrand, which, of course, as usual, Elon inserting himself into the news. He's trying to get one over on Barbie, I guess. A new agreement between the White House and tech companies on AI. And our friend of Pivot is Alondra Nelson, formerly the White House Office in Science and Technology Policy. She led the development of the Biden administration's blueprint for AI Bill of Rights. So we'll talk about that. But first, Scott, it was a huge weekend at the box office. Barbenheimer brought in a combined grand total of $244 million in ticket sales in the first three days. That's a big number. Barbie accounted for $162 million of that, while Oppenheimer brought in $82 million, well over expectations yeah. for both of those movies. That's $12.8 million tickets bought for Barbie and 5.8 million for Oppenheimer. It's set to be the fourth highest box office weekend of all time. And Greta Gerwig is now the most, uh, has sold the most tickets for um, female director in, I think, history. The people have spoken. Barbie is clearly the winner here, financially speaking. You have not seen Barbie still, even though it's about men and women and the, th- and the things you talk about of, w- of men being lost. Uh, I will ask how you thought of Ar- Oppenheimer, but Barbie was the clear winner financially and is leading the way and dragging and bringing Oppenheimer, which is also a fantastic movie, with it. Um, and the t- combined together, people were very excited and made it a appointment viewing, which hasn't happened in a long time for both of them. And they both spurred interest in each other. So uh, tell me what you thought of Oppenheimer. Well, first of all, uh, the the weekend and the box office receipts are really a win all around. I mm-hmm. mean, if there was an industry that needed good news, it's it's not only just Hollywood; it's specifically movie theaters. So, and something that was really inspiring, we did dinner before Mission Impossible at the Century City Mall. I'm not exaggerating; the mall was electric, and mm-hmm. everyone was wearing pink. Mm-hmm. And there for was, Oppenheimer, you know, then no, go ahead yeah, for Oppenheimer. <laughs> All the women were in pink. There mm-hmm. was um, a lot of men wearing pink. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was nice. I think anything that creates a sort of a collective is nice. Mm-hmm. I think we need more of that. Mm-hmm. We actually, our plane got delayed on Saturday by four hours. So I said, all right, let's bomb to the movie theater. And we went to the Van Nuys Regency. Mm-hmm. And we were five minutes late to see Barbie. So we saw Alpenheimer, which was um, 
starting in 10 minutes. I'd love to talk yeah, about it a little bit. talk about that. I think it's really, I mean, first off, I was going to love the movie before I even walked in. It's mm-hmm. World War II. It's science. It's kind of mm-hmm. this this tortured genius. It's just like everything I, I want in a movie. And also, I think Christopher Nolan is a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of its lessons apply to today, and that is people take for granted science really wasn't incorporated into government, much less the military's plans, until World War II. And the integration mm-hmm. of scientists and their sort of elevation to the kind of near gods, which continues today, really happened around World War II in this project with the recognition of, you know, whether it was Turing and breaking the Enigma codes or whether it was um, Oppenheimer and he developed a celebrity-like status. And both of whom suffered after they had had their accomplishments. Uh, hugely. And, I, you know, one of the lessons you take away is this notion of being a genius, it comes with downsides mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, your own kind of self-torture. But I thought it was a really interesting lesson in a few things. And the first is Oppenheimer, as much as he was a genius, he invented a new type of charisma. And that is everyone who met with Oppenheimer felt that there were these brilliant insights that he had yet to reveal. And they wanted to be around him and they wanted to be near his work. Mm-hmm. And he was able to bring together just unbelievably different cultures of, uh, you know, a culture of physicists, a culture of the military, a culture of the government to pull off something. We didn't, we thought at the time we were literally in a race and it ended up that the Germans had taken a wrong turn and we yeah. were really the only sole contender for the bomb. It's something else that people didn't realize is we only had two, we ran out. And one of the great philosophical questions that they talk about in every philosophy class now is, okay, maybe you can justify dropping the first bomb, but could we justify dropping two? Mm -hmm. And it was meant to say, hey, we have a lot of these. But also, there there was no reason why a scientist wouldn't logically think, now that we can do this, it's really the end of the world. I mean, you could could understand how they would have thought that. And I see it as really a victory for society globally because we were able to destroy a city in a flash. And we've, in the last really, you know, in the last 75 years, we haven't had more detonations because the world has decided this is bad. Go ahead. Okay. I want to know what you thought of the movie. So, (laughs) what did I think of the movie? Yeah. Um, Thank you for that history lesson. I thought it was a masterclass. I think Christopher Nolan, it clearly, there were about a dozen stars in this movie Mm -hmm. who are used to being the star. Mm-hmm. And they were given. I mean, uh, Robert Downey Jr. will win an Academy he was the Award. Star in the movie, yeah. Remy Malek, who mm-hmm. who is a big star, had a small role, but he was so excited to work with Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan. And he, there was just these master performances at every term. Emily Blunt was mm-hmm. uh, just Super fantastic. Um, I, you know, it just there were just all these incredible cameos. I would almost say by these brilliant actors and the mm-hmm. the cinematography. The, so you, you didn't think it was too long. You know what's interesting? My 12-year-old said it was his favorite movie ever. And I I didn't think a 12-year-old would be able to get through three hours of it. uh, Interestingly, Alex and Louis went to see Barbie this weekend. And what did they think? Uh, You know, I think they liked it. I think they, you know, I think it is aimed at women a little more, but it certainly provoked a lot of conversation. They, 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 I think Alice called it seven out of 10 because he's an Oppenheimer or Stan, no matter how. Mm -hmm. And he has to compare them, which they're not comparable. They're actually complementary. And Mission Impossible... And indie didn't are, are dropping off rather significantly, and and Sound of Freedom, which was another original movie, even though the guy who who stars in it and pushed it out is very Trumpy. He thinks Trump is like Jesus essentially, and has QAnon edges to him. That did very well too. All these are original movies, original if you think about them in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, versus a sequel or a superhero movie. 
Well, look, the industry will constantly play up successes. The reality is there might be a blip up, but movie theater box office is in structural decline and it'll mm -hmm. maintain its decline. So I, good for them, enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. But just, I was like to try and relate this to some sort of business mm -hmm. learning for a young executive. Mm -hmm. One of the real, I don't know, lessons or takeaways from Oppenheimer mm -hmm. is that hubris can um, best genius. Mm -hmm. And this was a guy who ultimately got a security clearance taken away. Mm -hmm. he, Unfairly. He, uh, but taken away. And returned, and, but go ahead. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Literally, give me some running room here. All, All right. right. Let, me, let me acknowledge that Barbie's the greatest movie ever before seeing okay. it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the also just the notion that he wanted to, he had an important message that we should stop the arms race before it really hits its its stride. And Edward mm -hmm. Teller was a big proponent of moving to an H-bomb testing, and the, the arms race just, just bursted wide open. Mm -hmm. And his message was undermined by his hubris. And that is, at the end of the day, if you're an asshole, if you don't respect other people, if you embarrass them publicly, if you sleep with their wives, it will come back to haunt you regardless of what a genius you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a lot of lessons today that there's people who who take science and their prestige garnered from science is convincing them that they're almost godlike. Yeah. And hubris, hubris can undo any genius. It can yeah. undo any genius. Yeah. I just thought it was, I can't stop thinking about it because I'm interested mm -hmm. in that that era. And also, I think he was pretty a, a pretty deeply unhappy person. Sounds like it. It was interesting because one of the things that I thought from the movie was he wasn't as arrogant as many science people we know and science and tech people we know for yeah. sure. And he was yeah. very thoughtful and had a lot of good relationships. I do think the carelessness and thinking that Russia or whoever wasn't going to steal the secrets. Now, I thought they yeah. would have gotten stolen no matter what. And it would have, the Russia would have gotten to it, the Germans, whoever would have gotten to it. I thought it was, it was a beautiful movie. It was a very beautiful and moving movie. I'm glad it stuck with you. Is there one scene that stuck with you? And then we're going to move on to another topic. I, I thought when they, when they tested the thing, mm -hmm. It was really powerful because, I mean, I, when you think about what they did, mm -hmm. it was so visionary and strange. He brought everyone to this remote place in the desert and said, we need yeah. to build a church, restaurants, a post office, and ask everyone and their families to move to this place. Mm -hmm. That's just so incredible. And um, I don't know. the. I'm trying to think if there's there really. I'm not sure there's one scene that stands out. Is there one scene that stands out for you? Well, the, the bombing was just his breath. All you heard was the breath, not the yeah, noise of the it bomb. Was very dramatic. I'll tell you. You know who I thought was great? Matt Damon. Un another undersung. There, role. there were there were five Everybody. amazing. There were there were literally a dozen it great a performances in the movie. It was a real team effort. Yeah, it was. It, it was a great was, role for him. It was a great role for him. And there were a lot of complex topics and people and relationships that they managed to keep going. I'm going to go back and see both Barbie and it and Mission Impossible because I think there's a lot there. The line that stuck with me, I won't say it was the, the scene, but the line that stuck with me, mm -hmm. Gary Oldman, again, another amazing yeah. actor <laughs> playing Truman. Crybaby? Well, that, but what, he has this line, you know, Oppenheimer says, uh, sir, I have blood on my hands. And he looks at him and he goes, no one gives a shit who built this thing. They yeah. care who dropped it. Mm-hmm. And I thought yeah. that was very powerful, yeah. and he was right. He was right. It, you know, it's it's the decision to drop it, not to build it. Yeah. I mean, there, you can yeah. literally go, if we talked yeah. about this for longer, which we can't, we'd go, oh, and this amazing performance, yeah. and this yeah. amazing I forgot performance. About it. I thought Ullman was great. He was great. That was 
Get that! Don't let that crybaby back in here. Yeah, don't um, let him back in here. Yeah. yeah, I know. It was interesting that he sort of, he could have really been celebrated more and he just decided to say no. All right. Speaking of moguls who have big responsibilities, 10 years after, 10 years after buying the Washington Post, I can't believe it's that long, during which his levels of interest in it have varied, mostly not very interested. Jeff Bezos is rolling up his sleeves again. The company's down a half a million subscribers, which is a lot, and set to lose $100 million this year. Incredible amount of money. He's reportedly planning for 2023 to be, quote, a year of investment, but not a year of profit. He appointed, as we've discussed before, Patty Stonecipher, who I have great regard for, as interim CEO last month after the publisher, Fred Ryan, stepped down and Bezos gave him an easy exit by funding his civility efforts. Uh, meanwhile, he's weighing in personally on a project for the opinion section. Uh, full disclosure, my wife, Amanda, works for the opinion section, but it's not involved in any of this, while greenlighting an overhaul of the style section and online redesign. What thinks you of this? Um, I still think he's going to lose interest. I don't think he's, I think he just sort of ended up with it. And it's not that energetic, but he put someone in who is very good. Any thoughts? I think this is an example. Uh, I mean, it would be ideally we could have long form journalism and companies that are traditional newspapers and bring a level of fact checking and reverence for for long-form journalism or gumshoe reporting, you'd like to think that that's an industry that's self-sustaining. It's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. And so the bottom line is what you, the best you can hope for is a benign billionaire, someone mm-hmm. like a Bloomberg. But basically that's what's happened with Sam Zell, whoever you look at, newspapers, mm-hmm. the Tribune, the Times, they buy these things. Um, billionaire Democrats buy newspapers and billionaire Republicans buy football teams. And when the New York, when I was involved with the New York Times and we hit some rep patches, I think I heard from every Democratic billionaire in, yeah, in the Eric nation Schmidt. saying- I know, wasn't he there? Saying that they were interested in getting involved. In other mm-hmm. words, they were interested in owning it. And they would wake up in the morning and say, hello, publisher in the New York Times. Right, her owner. And the, the reality is these things just economically don't work. And mm-hmm. so, and also there's a tell here and that is, they're going to lose more money this year because Patty Stonecipher wouldn't have taken this job unless she had a commitment from Bezos to make the requisite investments. Right. She's a smart woman. And this is why the Grams probably sold it to Bezos to continue that level of journalism. Mm-hmm. You're just going to lose a shit ton of money. And yeah. here's the good news. He has a shit megaton of money. Mm-hmm. So even if he loses a quarter of a billion dollars this year on $60 billion in wealth at 8%, he's going to make $5 billion more this year. Mm-hmm in his investment. So it really doesn't doesn't matter. And I think he has proven so far mm-hmm. to be a very responsible steward because what I have found, I've actually been in some newsrooms. I do find the journalists, when they see this billionaire come in, mm-hmm. they kind of, I don't want to say they ignore the business realities, but they expect that person, they, they rightfully believe what yeah. they do mm-hmm. is noble, but they expect yeah. that person to just to just invest. Not right. They don't expect this to be profitable. They're like, come yeah. on, this is more important than that. And there's no one who can invest like Jeff Bezos. I think Jeff Bezos is a gift to the Washington Post. I agree. I, I, I agree. You know. I think, I, you know, I w- it would be interesting if he was even more involved. I don't think he is as much interest in it. Uh, he has obviously put someone he values in that spot, which I thought was, that took far too long. Fred Ryan was really floundering toward the end of his tenure and hadn't been decisive the way, say, uh, uh, Meredith Levy and has been at the New York Times or the owners, the Salzberger family has been in terms of adding on things that make it profitable. You know, they're, they're not very profitable, but they're profitable now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, these things will, one of the things I talk about is, oh, Oh, New York Times is a runaway success. I'm like, it's not that profitable. It's just a little profitable kind of thing. But you're right. It has. It takes a commitment. They could certainly make this profitable, I think. I suspect there's room for two 
big national news organizations that own a lot of different properties, not just the print newspaper itself. Um, but you're right. For, it, for the Washington Post to be profitable, it'd be a shadow yeah. of itself. They would have to yeah. cut so much spending. Yeah. And also the New York Times, really over the last 30 years, it's gone from a regional to a national to quite frankly, a global uh, newspaper. It, it folded, what was it? The International Herald Tribune. And Tribune. It's just got global reach. Uh, mm-hmm. The Washington Post to get to where the New York Times is would need to lose a couple billion dollars or invest a couple billion dollars and it'll take them a decade. It will never... So if, what would you do? Give me something you would do. So just keep at this minor level of loss or possibly get it to break even. That's what you would do. What I would do is realize that I'm going to be dead soon, regardless mm-hmm. of the amount of andro, you know, andro and testosterone I'm taking. And regardless of how hot my girlfriend is, I'm going to be dead soon. And I, my mark mm-hmm. here is to do something really wonderful for democracy mm-hmm. and incredible, an incredible evangelist for West Western values is the Washington Post. And mm-hmm. if there's anything that's worth investment and worth one, two, three percent of my wealth, it's not a, a giant clock or some giant dildo into space. It's mm-hmm. the Washington Post. So <laughs> okay. what would I do? I would continue to make big investments in this wonderful property that, again, espouses Western and values. And get it to break even, get it to maybe break even. Well, it has to be. It can't be hemorrhaging money because at yeah, some point he will die. Yeah. Because at some point- yeah, and someone else. So get it to a point where it's ideally like the New York Times and that is it's self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. And and this is what sucks about these other media companies mm-hmm. is they draft off of, and I always tell the story, Bill Keller of the mm-hmm. New York Times, I had dinner with him in 2008 and he had to excuse himself. And I'm like, where are you going? He said, I have to go negotiate the release of one of our journalists yeah. from the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's what we're doing. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Google has just a bunch of engineers that they slip a pizza box under the door. It's stealing our content and making mm-hmm. a shit ton of money while we try and yeah. negotiate the release of, of our journalists. And yeah, so- they're trying it again with AI. They're trying it again. We'll there you go. That. So, yeah, I, I, like, I'm, I'm, I think it's wonderful Bezos is involved here. I think he can make a big difference. I think these things matter. And the reality is these these things need benign billionaires that are willing to invest. The they, benign they billionaire Scott success. theory of things. All right. Well, speaking of not so benign billionaires, let's get to our first big story. Twitter is called X now. The bird is dead. The new logo is an X on a black background. I thought it was terribly designed, by the way. Uh, Elon says tweets are now called X's. Uh, the rebrand was announced about a day before it was implemented. Musk said it would only happen if the logo was good enough, which it is not. Go look at it. As of Monday morning, Musk hadn't even secured the at X handle. The word tweet is still all over the site's UI and the domain X.com redirected to a GoDaddy page. This isn't entirely out of the blue or the black. In October 2022, Musk tweeted or rather x I can't do it, that buying Twitter is an accelerant to creating X, the everything app. Uh, I'm told that he's told a lot of people about it. Um, uh, he told he told a lot of political people, including Donald Trump, from what I heard early that he was doing this. Um, Linda Yaccarino, X, <laughs> that it's exceptionally rare thing in life or business. You get a second chance to make another big impression. She also had a word salad that I, I, I could read for you if you really want to hear it. It said it had all the words in it except for synergy. Can you read what she said? Can you read it? All right. Linda Yaccarino, among other things, said it was going to be do everything, but um, she tweeted, I'm going to read this whole, X is the future state of unlimited interactivity centered on audio, video, messaging, payments, slash banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, services, and opportunities. Powered by X, X will connect us all in ways we're just beginning to imagine. She said it will be everything. I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. 
So it's pretty clear at her Toastmasters class, she sat next to Adam Newman. Yeah. I mean, that's literally read that. And it's such consultant speak and such nothing. Yeah. She's literally, she's showing up. I think she looks ridiculous. She I clearly agree. has this is the absolutely. This like, whoa, Linda, dial She clearly has absolutely no input into anything yeah. Yeah. and is there trying to make chicken salad out of chicken shit and she pretend that she thinks any of, of this makes sense. With a lot of words. Even Aaron Levy, who runs Box, which also has an X in it, said, what do these words mean? And then he took it down because everyone was like, huh? Um, the big question about X is, of course, why or WTF? Talk about this. He's fired a bunch of employees, made a hugely unpopular changes to the platform, scrapped all of the brand equity now by changing the name. Um, uh, I don't know if Linda knew about that he was going to do this. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But she's certainly trying to back him. Talk about the brand equity, because Mark Zuckerberg changed the name of Facebook to Meta, but they kept Facebook. Uh, they kept Instagram. They kept these important things. Can you talk a little bit about the brand change? Yeah, they're totally different because Facebook kept a consumer-facing equity. It just mm-hmm. changed the corporate name, which is really for employees. Or Google did the same thing. Google with Alphabet. Right, to Alphabet. So you could kind of justify those. The first thing is, just to acknowledge, Elon Musk has built or been the driving force behind two of the most ascended brands the last decade. Mm-hmm. First, Tesla into uh, SpaceX. And he did it in very innovative ways. He didn't use advertising. He actually used Twitter as his primary vehicle. You know, the guy, no matter what, whether it's something stupid, something innocuous, something controversial, something repugnant, he's figured out that if I'm in the news every 48 hours, my brands will have global awareness. And he also, to his credit, built amazing products, incredible breakthrough innovation, even things like opening a store in a mall for Tesla rather than a dealership on the outskirts of town. He Mm -hmm. has proven to be one of the most thoughtful, seminal brand builders in history. Mm -hmm. Changing, uh, doing away with Twitter to X will go down is absolutely one of the worst brand decisions in history. Probably a third to 50% of the world's population know what Twitter is, and they recognize the logo. Mm -hmm. And about 97 to 99% of all money spent every day is on brands you've heard of before. You're not going to return the email of someone you haven't heard of. You're not going to buy a tennis shoe you haven't heard of before. So just awareness is a massive asset. And it's also Mm -hmm. really expensive to build. Also, the logo, it really connotes something very distinct. It's You know exactly what it is when you see the bird. This is, if you were to try and replace this and say, all right, we want to have a logo that everyone recognizes, they know exactly what it stands for. It has actually quite a few, if not positive associations, relevant associations. It's differentiated, it's relevant, it has moats, and half the world knows it. If someone said you have a decade and $10 billion, can you do this? You wouldn't be sure you could do it. So at a minimum, he's taken $10 billion worth of brand equity and taken it into the street and lit it on fire. Mm-hmm. And what it says to me is, and I, I, I mean, I'm not, I believe in billionaires. I believe in capitalism. I don't like the idea of a wealth tax. But mm-hmm. when I was thinking about this over the weekend, this really is another signal or indication that income inequality has gotten to a point where an individual in his spare time can make a dumb decision to buy something he doesn't want for $45 billion, mm-hmm. use it to not wreak havoc, but create a lot of tumult. I know there's a lot of stands out there, but so far, Twitter in the last six months has not been accretive for the world. Mm-hmm. And then make a decision like this, which means yeah. there's nobody on his board that lis- he listens to. 
Typically, to buy a $45 billion company, you would have investors and other people that would weigh in on a decision like this. And there is no rational justification for no, this decision. No, he just decision. decided to do it uh, I, that, on a Saturday. It feels like that. I, Linda just tweeted, X is here. Uh, let's do this with this very unattractive logo. Like an it looks crypto. The design looks, looks crypto. crypto. It, it looks, looks it looks uber looks like male, a, but in a but in a like a, a flag I don't want on my car or don't want to be near right. people with this flag on their car. It feels very it feels like Confederacy. Yeah, exactly. It, it feels smells very, like Confederacy. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, it, it's wow. not. It's not, and the design looks yeah. bad. It just feels very, and they're talking about bringing all these things together, but where are all the Why things Why not just have the bigger together? corporate thing? I mean, you know, it's interesting because Walt Mossberg wrote, companies change names all the time, but popular products, rarely the words tweet and Twitter have become part of the language. So brand equity Musk is giving up is huge. I know he wants to add many functions and services to you, but why did it require a name change? And for some reason, JR, who is usually intelligent, say, when you see how successful Alphabet and Meta have been with their name changes, you have to do it. He said they were corporate name changes. Just not product name changes. Alphabet didn't change the name Google. Meta yeah. didn't change the name of Facebook. Yeah, I no don't know why. Alpha, I don't know Alphabet. No one's saying that. He could have <laughs> created his own financial brand or Twitter money or yeah, whatever. And he also was it. saying that it's going to be like most of the global financial network. I just was like, are you are you high? And then I thought, well, it's probably. The answer is yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From a brand decision, and it goes back to hubris, and it goes back to People, you know, not enough of these billionaires have guardrails in the form of other investors, much less regulation. Mm -hmm. Anyone who had anyone around them mm -hmm. who had any credibility or any authority would say, we need to rethink this decision. Right. Because if some, if he put the brand up for sale and just said, you have access to the logo and the name, someone would mm -hmm. probably pay a billion dollars plus for it. Right. You don't take this kind of, this type of equity takes decades and billions. What's the argument? You know, this is sort of a shoot the moon kind of thing. Like uh, someone was like, I appreciate him shooting the moon. I'm like, why? Why shoot the moon? I don't even understand it. I mean, is it does it get rid of like the badness around Twitter by calling it X? I mean, I know he loves the letter X, fine, whatever. He called one of his kids X. He his first one of his early companies was called X. I get it. You like the letter. It's great. I'm I'm fond of the letter C. I don't know what to say. But the branding discipline is really not strong here. This isn't yeah. shoot the moon, it's shoot yourself mm -hmm. in the foot. And it's so clear that there's nobody home here. Mm -hmm. The the site is a mess. Mm -hmm. Clearly, it just wasn't rolled out well. The name changes very rarely work mm -hmm. because usually it's a company trying to escape something. You know, there's a there's a, a, a disaster, an air disaster in the Everglades, they merge with another company. You know, Norwest changes its name to Wells Fargo because it's a better brand and M&A. But trying to like, but to take, I've never, I don't think we've ever seen this before. You could argue maybe a little bit with HBO to Max. Yeah. But no. to take a brand that's globally known and turn it to X and do it kind of incrementally, like, oh yeah, change that now. And oh wait, I want the, I, he's asked users to design it. Mm -hmm. It feels like you gave a 16 year old boy Mm -hmm. a couple hundred billion dollars and mm -hmm. said, have at it. These decisions, yeah. and maybe that's part of his genius that he has no guardrails. I don't well, know. Yeah. Yeah. But this one, every brand strategist, every head of an ad agency, any academic in the world of marketing is going to go at this and cock their head and go, they'll wait for a minute because a lot of the stuff he does ends up being not only just crazy, but crazy genius. But this just seems crazy. And it doesn't, mm -hmm. it feels like it's not very well thought through. Mm -hmm. And he's decided... 
this is my toy and I like the term X. Mm-hmm. And Linda Yaccarino putting out these, like you said, this word salad trying to, I feel like she's the circus clown behind an elephant scooping up shit every 30 yeah, seconds. I do too. It just feels, anyways, uh, I, I'm sad. I wish mm-hmm. he would put it up for sale because I'd love someone to buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a, I do, it's a global brand. I would bet it's one of the top 50 most recognized logos in the world because this logo has been at the bottom of every media company on TV. Well, it they're says, talking about them. Right, they're talking about it. Well, as, he even as to do that. yeah, even as you know, the threads numbers are going down because that's what happens in these cases. The usage numbers. Um, although I'm using it more, I have to say, I guess he just wants to put his name on it. I don't. I, I I'm trying to give the nicest case scenario. The other is he just thought of it because he was he had a bad trip one night and said, "Let's do this," and he likes the letter X and he's rich. Well, but that's my point. I don't. I, I'm honestly the point. I'm like, when people can just sort of buy. F- $45 billion media companies and then start, uh, you know, retweeting <laughs> conspiracy theories and then just go, oh, let's just call it X. And yeah. I, I'm like, okay, we have, we have gotten to a point where some people just have too much money. Yeah. And when you, and when they have no guardrails and they can, they can buy big companies like this and make these sorts of decisions errantly based yeah. on their blood sugar level and this idea they have. And clearly this just has not been thought out. So it's clear is, most is there the any? The pot, let me. Know. I want you. Like, is there? Will people forget it? Because you know, no one likes Meta still. I mean, we just sort of go along with it, and people still call it Facebook. What positive could it be that he gets to start fresh? Uh, look, I I like how you try to. You're a journalist, and you want to see both sides of this. There's not a lot of positive here because yeah. it's it's yet another opportunity for people to sort of abandon it. Yeah. To say I don't understand it, I don't get it. I'm going to try this threads thing. But name changes very rarely work. The reason most companies go do a name change is in an acquisition, they acquire a company that's stronger than them with a brand. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, Norwest, mm-hmm. a company known for mortgages that was a very healthy bank, acquired Wells Fargo. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Wells Fargo's a stronger brand. Dean Witter acquired Morgan Stanley. And they're like, you know what? Morgan Stanley is a stronger brand than Dean Witter. We're going to go with this one. Or someone says, our corporation, everybody hates us. Let's call the whole thing meta. And I think the metaverse is going to be a big deal. But Mark Zuckerberg was smart enough to go, the people who use Instagram do not want a different logo or a different name. We're not going to risk that franchise. Right, right. And that's what he's done here. Just the downside yeah. here is exponentially greater it, it really than is. the upside. Yeah, I will read from Lou Pascal. It's a very well-known ad person for yeah, years and years know, and still is. Um, a very close friend of Linda's, by the way. Uh, latest in the unending series of idiotic edicts from Elon Musk announced last night and uninformed by any user insights. Worst of all, his all the birds comment is likely to reinforce the perception that a few remaining Twitter 1.0 team that they're unwanted. The Twitter blue bird logo is beloved, ubiquitous, and has nearly 100% unaided awareness globally, something that most brands yep. never come close to achieving. Never. Virtually yeah. every newscaster, reporter, and byline features the logo exclusively, giving the brand millions in free marketing. Um, I think he's right. I think he has a very good point. No brand discipline whatsoever, and just shitting on what is, even though they have troubles, it's a great brand. Great brand. I, I'm literally going to take $10 billion plus. It's impossible to put a number on it mm-hmm. and just set it on fire. Yeah. And give people yet another excuse to think, well, maybe I'm just done here. I don't yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. It, it, he's He's got a vision for X. He likes it. He's allowed to do it. This will go down as one of the 
strangest moves in the history of brand strategy. It is yeah. very hard to justify this. Yeah, I'll, I'll end with Rick Wilson. Desperate rebrands are inherently weak strategy when it's a product itself that needs the upgrade. Elon has worked diligently to make the site less fun, interesting, and easy to use. Grunting out my first amendment on a private platform is like screaming Hanseatic League at the Denny's. You get weird looks, but they're not connected issues. He can name it whatever he wants, but it diminishes an already wounded brand. So... Uh, I think he's right. The product matters. The product matters. Okay, that well, that's smart. that. That's really smart. Linda, ay, 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 call us. Seriously, you're much smarter than this. But I guess she has to go along. She has to go along. Not good. I thought she could get out of this cleanly, but I'm not so sure. And by the way, let me make one more point is I'm not giving this guy my credit card after these kind of decisions. I mean, there's no way in hell I'm going to do financial stuff with him. But maybe the rest of the world is, as people point out. This isn't having as big an impact anywhere but the U.S., but the U.S. is its most important market. Okay, Scott, let's go on a quick break. and we come back, Big Tech agrees to AI safety commitments, and we'll speak with a friend of Pivot, Alondra Nelson. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Scott, we're back. The Biden administration announced that seven tech companies have voluntarily agreed to a number of AI safety commitments. The companies include OpenAI, Google, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, and startups Anthropic and Inflection. That's pretty much all of them, all the big ones. Much of the agreement revolved around testing new AI models to ensure public safety and also to avoid bias and discrimination. Companies agreed to share information with each other about security risk and to implement bug bounty programs. They agreed to watermark AI-created images and audio, I think probably most significant 
thing. The White House announced it's also working on an executive order and bipartisan legislation to codify rules around AI. What do you think about this? Just a press release? I think it's important. I'm a bit of a cynic, and I hope it's Mm -hmm. not just an attempt to prophylactically avoid real regulation. Mm -hmm. And they're calling on their better angels and realize that it's probably a good idea for us to share this. The thing I like is the idea of a watermark around AI. Mm -hmm. Me too. I caught up with a friend yesterday I hadn't seen in several years. Do you know who Daniel Lubetsky is? Oh, like the guy from Kind Bars. Yeah. Yes, of course. He's a lovely guy. Daniel's one of these guys that's always like led with civic concern first. He's just, he's from a young age, he started a company called PeaceWorks that meant to bring Israeli and Palestinian workers together to work on companies together, thinking that commerce was a great unifier. Yep. And he kind of, I don't want to say accidentally fell into Kind, but, you know, building a billion-dollar confectionery company couldn't happen to a nicer guy, and I mean that literally. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm here in Aspen. He's here. Uh, one of the wonderful things, by the way, about this podcast is when I'm somewhere, people reach out to me because they hear about mm-hmm. it on the podcast. He said, Let get, let's get together for a walk. So we're, we're talking in Aspen, and immediately we talk about 2.30. Jesus Christ, in Aspen talking about 2.30. I think that's I the whitest. I think that's the whitest thing I've ever said. <laughs> Anyways... And I would like, I think there's some potential here. I wonder if um, if you really wanted to have teeth here. Mm-hmm. First off, there needs to be carve-outs from, from 2.30 around certain topical domains, whether it's mm-hmm. elections or health. I think there should be, in addition to sex trafficking, which has been very effective, there should be additional carve-outs. Another idea for a carve-out was that anything that is algorithmically elevated is effectively you're serving as an editor. You're no longer just a benign platform, a neutral arbiter. You've decided to elevate certain content. You have certain obligations Mm -hmm. around fact-checking. It's similar to every other media company. And that content becomes absolved or no longer has the shield of 230. Another interesting thing I think politicians should think about, and I was speaking to one this morning, is that if it's AI-generated, should that not have 230 protection, which would massively encourage investment to spot, screen, and filter AI-generated content and images on these platforms? Mm-hmm. Because this shit could get very scary very fast. And there's already been AI-generated images that have convinced people that the Pentagon is under attack, and we're just getting started. So I like this. I think it's a step in the right direction. I hope they're not using it as a head fake and a weapon yep, of mass that's distraction. Right. Yeah, that's my word. They have to pass actual legislation and give money and uh, staff to these agencies, teeth to these things. And very, not say the, you know, we were talking about the merger guidelines last week. They're using previous law to to try to get a stronger hand for themselves, these these regulators. But they really do need to define this as a different and new uh, technology. And I think they've done that and earlier than before, but the, the stakes are so much higher in this thing that they have to not just have executive orders. You know, you could see the right go after this, saying they're they're trying to tell these tech companies what to do and make woke AI, that kind of stuff. You can just see all the attacks that could happen here. And, you know, in previous tech booms, they've done nothing. And social media and the internet, if you want to use those, and I would put um, mobile in there, very little done around privacy, very little block and tackle. And my worries are going to do a lot of these announcements and then nothing, actually. That's my biggest worry here. But, you know, the watermarking, that that's this is the kind of stuff they have to do to cooperate together, especially around public safety, bias, discrimination. And of course, to me, provenance is the most important part of this. We give it a, what, a thumbs up, a thumbs up, a medium thumbs up. Yeah. Not as good as yeah. Barbie and Oppenheimer, but we- Cautiously optimistic thumbs Cautiously up. Cautiously optimistic. All right, let's bring in a friend of Pivot.
Alondra Nelson was formerly the deputy assistant to President Joe Biden, acting director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. She was the first African-American and first woman of color to lead U.S. science and technology policy in her role there. Among other things, she led the development uh, of the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights. She is currently the Harold F. Linder Professor at the Institute for Advanced Study, an independent research center in Princeton, New Jersey, where Oppenheimer was, by the way, and also Einstein. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to start, Alondra, about your thoughts on this new agreement between the White House and major tech companies. I'm sure you're very familiar with it and the different things they went through. Um, We just talked about it a second ago, a lot of around watermarking, AI images, but also other things. So give me a little rundown of how you think about it. Well, let's say at the top that it's, uh, you know, it's generally a good thing. Uh, I think the fact that it's voluntary, um, that we can... uh, are justified in being grumbly about that and wanting a mm-hmm. little bit more. Um, but mm-hmm. there are some good things here. I mean, I think the the high-level good thing is that um, the White House has been for government kind of moving at a clip around this. So they've been really serious mm-hmm. and things have been um, uh, moving. Um, that it's been happening since, you know, the, the October, uh, when I was in government in October of 2022, we did this blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. And so, yeah. you know, the Biden administration has been well engaged in this for a while. And I think there are things that I think all of us would have wanted. So, you know, uh, there's some fundamental things. I would point people to the actual commitment document. There are fundamental mm-hmm. things in there, like companies have a duty to make their products safe. You know, it's like mm-hmm. these are um, kind of fundamental assertions um, mm-hmm. uh, that are really important, that that the companies have to earn people's trust is what part of the commitments document says as well. And so I think we're at a place that's better than the social media moment at the same time. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that that's encouraging it's an increment. It's voluntary, um, uh, but and there's a lot more to do. But I think in general, um, you know, uh, it's it's good. So you said grumbly about voluntary. Um, yeah. These companies, obviously, people would like to see laws in place that never happen with social media. These companies have the proper incentives to follow them because some of these could feel like a press release, right? As you know, you've been in government, and that can happen. Yeah. I think we're getting to, I'm get, I think we're getting there. And I think that the fact that all, you know, these seven companies even agreed to this, um, I think mm-hmm. suggests that they know that legislation is coming and that they need to sort of get, get in line, get in formation. Um, so, but there's a, you know, obviously lots more to do here, but they've agreed on things like seven companies that are fierce competitors, um, have agreed on things that are more than just principles, right? So we've mm-hmm. got a, a level of granularity around red teaming that we haven't had before um, in the tech policy space um, Mm -hmm. uh, around basic sort of consumer privacy. At the same time, on the other side of this, we already have, um, you know, the FTC, other kinds of regulatory bodies saying that the law is the law and that you've got to protect consumers. So it's not Mm -hmm. like we're only waiting for the companies. You know, you've got, for example, the FTC saying we've got to protect consumers. You have CFPB, the Consumer Finance mm-hmm. Protection Bureau, saying the same. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that we're getting to slowly, incrementally, a, a kind of perfect storm or a cauldron of things that will get us to a, a better place than we've been in the last decade. Right. But legislation is really where it's at, whether it's merger guidelines or anything else. Guidelines sure. are one thing, Absolutely. but real law is another. Scott? Uh, nice to meet you, Alondra, and thanks for your good work. So I'm curious where you are on the spectrum of people who think that AI is just another tool that we'll use and it can be used for good means or bad means to the AI, what I'll call catastrophists, who think this is the end of the world, that this is now beyond any point of 
turning back. Where are you, like what kind of existential threat do you think AI presents with, with relative to other technologies? It is just a tool, but it's um, a, a very powerful tool. Um, and I think that there are potentially threats on the horizon. We know that there are threats that exist right now. So um, mm -hmm. we know that there are, you know, part of what I thought was great about the White House commitments document is that it felt like an attempt to kind of harmonize kind of various perspectives that have been emerging. So there's, you know, societal risks, um, risks around discrimination, bias and harm and these sorts of things. In addition to thinking about bioweapons and cybersecurity and the, the risks that are sort of far term. So, you know, I think that's what's good also about the commitments document. I think for me, particularly because I've just come out of government um, in February, I, I'm in the like realm of the practical. So while I think that there's, you know, both near term and far term risks, um, uh, we need to be able to do something about it. And I don't I think it's not entirely useful to be living in the world of speculation and science fiction. Mm -hmm. Like we've got to, you know, what are things that we can do things about um, and, and what are we going to do about them? What about the idea, and we were talking about this earlier, what about the idea of any AI generated content no longer enjoys 230 protection? You know, listen, I've heard that Ron Wyden himself, who was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, one of the co-sponsors of, yeah. of mm -hmm. Section 230, you know, decades ago, uh, saying exactly that. So, you know, I think there had been, uh, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I think all, we already saw with algorithmic amplification happening in the social media space that the social media platforms were doing more than just hosting. They were just, they were right. becoming much more than this sort, yeah. this sort of these neutral things that were, that were hosting information. Um, and I think when you get to advanced AI, generative AI, um, in which they are dialoguing with people, having interactions with people, you know, the systems are in tools are sorting information that they're going to send out to people. And we're, we're, we'll probably see a whole panoply of companies that are sort of choosing different ways to sort the information or to create layers on top of, of say, GPT-4. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know if we call it editorial, but there's a lot of choice and selection mm -hmm. and things being made here. So Yeah, but they're not, it's not clear whether they're covered. No, it's not clear. I think there'll be lawsuits that will, will determine mm -hmm. that. I would also say, you know, from the, the like sort of Biden administration perspective, even going in, you know, the president had said that he was looking at this and, and you know, uh, was suggesting that we needed to do a lot of reform, if not repeal in this space anyway. So there seems mm -hmm. to be a lot of uh, sort of energy um, galvanizing behind doing something finally. Or at least an explicit bill, I think, is it Warner and Ho Holly, uh, about that it's not, that it excludes yeah. it specifically. So one of the things that you said, um, we, we had been talking about Oppenheimer a little bit, and along with Barbie and stuff, you, you noted uh, he is a cautionary tale about the risks of AI and the discussions that need to happen in advance. Now, you had done this with the blueprint for AI Bill of Rights that you did, which was, I think, rather early, as you said. It was much earlier. I'd love your thoughts on why you decided to do it so early and what are the biggest changes since it came out? Oh, great question. So we came into office. I was a day one person. And, mm -hmm. you know, the the president and the vice president already said that um, not only Section 230, which we've just been talking about, but, per, you know, harms to children, harms to young people, thinking about competition and antitrust, uh, you know, issues about the threats of social media to democracy. These were already kind of front of mind for the administration. And so mm -hmm. the question then became, what is the proactive vision? Like, what's the, so we've got a lot of things that we don't like that we want to be critical of and that we want to change. At the same mm -hmm. time, is there sort of a proactive vision for what we want to do? So what 
uh, you know, what are the sort of rights protections that the people should have um, in the best of world with these kinds of increasingly powerful technologies? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's how we went about the work. We spent a year talking to, uh, you know, all sorts of folks from, you know, researchers to companies to to high school students. Um, and we also wanted to produce a, a, a document, the part of me that's a teacher sometimes that was readable. Um, so it's a long document at 70 plus pages, but it, you know, anybody can read it. It's a resource for people. I think it teaches people a little bit about AI and how systems work, mm-hmm. teaches people a little bit about what you can do about it. So, you know, we introduce mm-hmm. red teaming and auditing and risk assessment and these sorts of things. And so it was really to sort of to say, if we're going to sort of move ahead with, um, you know, a better vision and, you know, how are we going to do that? Also, I think it was really the White House kind of setting the table and setting the vision. So, mm-hmm. you know, the document's been referred to as aspirational. It certainly is, much like last week's commitments. It's uh, voluntary, certainly true. But, you know, I think at its best, what the White House does and what the president does is is to kind of create a vision and expectation for American society at its best. And a lot has changed. So a lot has changed, but I think some fundamental things are true. So a theory of the case with the AI Bill of Rights is that technology is going to change really quickly. It's changing all the time. It's changing all around us. So what Mm -hmm. do we want to anchor on? Like, what are the things Mm -hmm. that we, um, you know, as we go from generative AI to AGI, as we go from a world in which we have generative AI and perhaps quantum mm-hmm. computing that like ends encryption as we know it. You know, there's all of these kind of technologies happening mm-hmm. about us. We can try to regulate the thing, which is probably may not be the best idea, or we can try to regulate the outcomes, or we can try to sort of level set on the society that we want. So whether or not you're talking about generative AI or quantum computing, do we want basic privacy for American public? The answer mm-hmm. is yes. The question is, you know, how do the, what are the processes, norms? How do we get there? I think will be different, but I think that we need to sort of keep in mind, you know, the kind of holy grail is not AGI. The holy mm-hmm. grail, the thing that we are guarding with our guardrails, our democracy, opportunities yes. for people, public safety, and things like that. And so, the right. theory of the case with the AI Bill of Rights is that we are going to keep our eyes on that and think about the regulations, norms, standards, practices we need to get there. So, Alondra, I'm always heartened when I hear from, mm-hmm. you know, insightful and intelligent people such as yourself that outline the issues really well. And then it it all leads to a giant nothing burger. We've never <laughs> had an industry this big with this lack of regulation. And so it strikes me there's a ton of insight, a ton of um, really brilliant, uh, articulate people outlining the issue, and it results in nothing. Why have we not been able to pass anything resembling regulation on an industry that is now by market cap, the largest industry in the world, arguably the most influential industry in the world. What are the forces that you and your colleagues are facing that has gotten in the way of us being able to enact any of these very thoughtful views? I think that you, you know, you had a wonderful conversation with Senator Warner a few months ago and, you know, he really nailed it, which is um, lobbying. So you've got big industry, big tech, on the one side of their mouth saying, we need to be regulated. This is horrible what's going on. And on the other hand, you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year uh, lobbying against regulation. And so I think that's, you know, that's a fundamental problem and, and government cannot compete with that in a fundamental way. I think 
The president has succeeded in doing some bipartisan things. He believes mm -hmm. in it. He thinks it can work. I think the horrors of the last decade and of social media are such that people are exhausted. They see that a lot of harms have been done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that there's a space for bipartisanship around this. Like people don't want children harmed and young people harmed. People understand that, you know, antitrust and competition is might be a problem when you can do something like the, the threads transition and, and no one sort of needs to have a conversation <laughs> about that. Certainly issues around privacy. I mean, I think even the fact that you look at um, the Judiciary Subcommittee that Senator Blumenthal and Senator Hawley are working, seem to be working really well together on that. So mm -hmm. it does feel like a window of opportunity. I also think the like the somewhat panic freak out of the public release of GPT-4 um, and all of the the kind of risk conversation has galvanized the public and got the public's attention in a way mm -hmm. that hadn't really existed before. And then that gets legislators' attention. When the public is paying attention, mm -hmm. legislators are paying where, attention. Uh, so, Alondra, where where would you start? If you if you had a magic wand, would you start with privacy, age absolutely. gating, section yeah. 230? I mean, at this point, having been in government for two years and a bit, mm -hmm. please get anything over the line. I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, nothing can hurt. Like, so if you yeah. do antitrust, if you do privacy, um, if you do protect protections from for for young people, none of these things are uh, to the deficit of the larger goals that we're trying to reach here. But I think privacy is a key one. And I would say, you know, to go back to Kara's earlier question, data privacy and data issues are the thing that's not in this White House commitments document. I mean, mm -hmm. the, there's an assertion that privacy protections need to be mm -hmm. strengthened, but we're not talking about the data piece, which is so important here. Yeah, I would agree. And one of the things is, of course, the, the private sector tends to be running the show for most of tech, as, as Scott said, and the government has lost its preeminent voice on the topic. But it's interesting. I was just looking, I, I'm on X or whatever we're calling it today. <laughs> this guy, Martin Crowley, said, if you're not using AI, you're falling behind. And then Sally Jenkins from the Washington Post said, if you're using AI to write or create, you're plagiarizing. And so these kind of, I mean, like, what? Like, this is like, it's a really interesting back and forth and back and forth and back and forth going on, which I think people are surprised at. So Scott, of course, is, and I don't think there should be a pause in AO development. Um, how do you answer as a government that regulation inhibits innovation? Because that's what you're getting here. There's a, there's, a, there's a gold rush on in terms of investment and money and start an AI company no matter what you do, you need to learn it. How do you how do you make that argument that regulation helps innovation versus inhibits? Because that's been the the tech industry's go to for far too long. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways um, you make the case is, 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 I think, just a business case. So there was a, um, I think it was a Goldman Sachs report that came out in March or April that was trying to think about the the market cap and what might happen you know, as as AI gets up and running and they were anticipating, you know, something like 7% increase in global G GDP, you know, mm -hmm. potentially sort of, you know, trillion dollar kind of investment and productivity globally. But as I said elsewhere, what I was really struck by was like a lot of equivocating language. So there was a lot of words mm -hmm. like around uncertainty and it could potentially mm -hmm. do and it might in ways that documents from big finance don't usually do. They're really just often leaning into the hype cycle mm -hmm. and like, let's go with it. And so I think the certainty, the uncertainty around 
the technology, the hallucinations, mm-hmm. like, you, you know, are, is it going to work if I use it this time? Is it going to work mm-hmm. differently if I, you know, put a layer on top of it um, and try to use it with a customer in another instance? I think mm-hmm. that uncertainty around the regulation um, does not create a kind of rich, robust space for innovation. So there's a business mm-hmm. case for that. I also think as a researcher, you know, um, sitting here in my office in Princeton, where people have come to think about really hard problems that the sort of challenges around the technology, you know, how do you explain it? How do we get to a place where you can, you know, make sure it's transparent and all of that are real opportunities for innovation as well. So just the, the sort of intellectual puzzle to be a, a nerd about it um, are, are opportunities for innovation as well. I think the rest of it, a lot of the rest of it are um you know, the lobbying narratives that lobbyists tell us. And, and I don't mm-hmm. think that there needs to be, uh, you know, a, a, yep. a natural tension yep. between innovation and, and, and releasing safe, exciting, fun products that lead to productivity that don't steal people's livelihoods. Yeah, but government's so stupid, Alondra. <laughs> government's not stupid. Government's I know that. I'm stupid. teasing you. It's bullshit. I know, All right. I know. Scott, but Scott, I also I know. say, I mean, you know, this was my first time working in government and, uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, like the congressional Slower. staffers are really good. They're, they you are. know, they're, they're, they're fantastic. And there's a lot of good people working in government. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, the, you know, I think what it is, is that folks are tremendously outnumbered and outgunned. So you're mm-hmm. outgunned by the lobbyists and, you know, they're mm-hmm. the, the sort of, um, you know, going from the Reagan period, that sort of government, you know, government's the problem. It's too big. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, offices are way too small. Budgets are way too small for the work that has yep. to be done. And I think if we want to really have nimble, agile regulation around big tech and some of these other fast-moving industries, we really need to revisit that conversation. I mean, not that you could have, mm-hmm. should have excessive budgets, you know, for, for right. government salaries yeah, and the like, outgunned. but no we need people to do the work. Yeah. Scott, last question? Yeah. So just to reinforce, anybody who's exposed to people in D.C. up and down the supply chain are, I think, universally surprised at how hardworking and how smart the people are and committed they are. Uh, But let me make an ageist comment. They're also really old. Our average elected official is 63, meaning for every 40-year-old elected, there is somebody who's dead. It's just, and I'm I'm ageist around technology. I think younger people have an an easier time grasping new technologies. I feel it myself. And my question is, when do you agree with that? The part of the problem is our elected representatives are just too old to really grasp these new technologies. And two, how can we solve for that? If you agree with it. As someone who's closer to 63 than not and is increasingly finding myself turning to, uh, you know, a graduate student or a niece or a nephew being like, how do I do this thing on this jing mm-hmm. and the mob? You know, um, What's my I, I like, fundamentally agree with you. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I also, but, the, but, you know, folks have young staffers. I mean, like, you know, I think it's not, entirely incorrect, these stories that mm-hmm. say 20-year-olds run Washington, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of quite young staffers who really do get it. I think what you do have is a deficit of attention, particularly with legislators. They've got these huge portfolios. They're running, you know, local offices, and they've got a lot of expectations. And they don't always snap to attention on the things that they need to. And so I think if you think about the difference between what I thought, you might not agree, Scott, but what I thought were like really smart, sophisticated questions at this hearing that Sam Altman was at. I mean, there was a lot of celebration and praise of Sam as well. But, you know, relative to hearings we had even five or six years ago where people were saying, like, what are the interwebs? And how do I, you know, do you know, just like fundamental things. How do you make money? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
certainly I would make a pitch to folks who are listening that young people do need to to go into government and it's it's pretty important and run for office. And I think I'm encouraged to see young people running for, for office as well. Thank you so much. I wanted to bring you on for a long time. I think you're one of did an amazing job with that Bill of Rights and it was way ahead of it, uh, way ahead in so many ways. And I really appreciate it. Well, we tried and worked really hard. Um, I know you did. You did a great job. Um, anyway, I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you, Alondra. I'm a big fan. Thanks for having me. All right, Scott, aren't you impressed? I think Alondra's, uh, every time I talk to her, I feel smarter. Yeah, it's, uh, man, what I said, people, when you yeah. get to this level of government, what you find is remarkably intelligent, committed people who have a lot of options and decide that they want to go to work for their country on both sides of the aisle. It's very heartening. Absolutely. It is. Anyway, one more quick break. We'll be back for wins and fails. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Scott, let's hear some wins and fails. Well, the obvious fail is uh, what will go down is the weirdest rebranding in history. Is it the um, weirdest? I don't think you've ever seen a, a a brand with this global awareness and, quite frankly, mm-hmm. positive, positive associations. This singular, this differentiated, just be like overnight. Yeah. We're calling it X. I don't think. I don't think. I think this is new. Yeah, their best hope is the rest of the world doesn't care. Um, that is that is a business fail, and it sort of mm-hmm. flies in the face. I mean, if he pulls this off, quite frankly, we're all going to have to rethink brand strategy. Right, uh, yeah, we basic can do that. tenets of it. That maverick, everyone will go. That maverick, he's such a maverick. But I also, I, I really do think we're at the point, and I don't like class warfare against billionaires. Mm-hmm. I do think this indicates that power makes you more stupid. It just everybody needs guardrails, and corporate yeah. governance is important. And this isn't going to this isn't going to damage the world, I don't think. But mm-hmm. it's it's clear that he has absolutely nobody around him that he listens to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm now at the point where okay, when we have five people worth more than the bottom half of America, we probably mm-hmm. have gotten out of control in terms of what it means for people with this, what they can do with this kind of money. Anyways, that's my fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, my win is I think every high school senior should be, I don't want to say forced, but I think every history teacher or science teacher should should do what my teachers used to do in the fourth and fifth grade when they were terribly hung over, and that is just put a film in front of us for three hours. Oh. I, I do think Oppenheimer, I thought the movie, uh, I just I think that is such a difficult story to tell with that kind of, insight and that kind mm-hmm. of visual it was just so rest- i love that it had no cgi i love that yeah. he wasn't wearing tights or a cape mm-hmm. i love that it wasn't a sequel i love that mm-hmm. it isn't a movie franchise or we're not gonna have oppenheimer seven mm-hmm. my 12 year old is asking me all sorts of questions yeah, about Alex, war yeah. and mm-hmm. about arms control and i think that we have lost a sense because the majority of us never, the majority of uh, America now has never been drafted. Mm-hmm. The majority of America has never known an economy that has really, um, really been disrupted through hyperinflation. We've never had an existential threat to our physical safety from a competitor. We had 9 11, but 
I don't think most people in the nation were actually physically worried about their own safety. And I think revisiting history is just so powerful when it's done it well. Is. It is. I, you um, know, I think can I, one of the things I think yeah. is interesting is, and you will see Barbie, it's actually a very smart movie. And so our up and People say it's clever. Clear, I've clever. It's, it's really clever. It's real, you'll see it's got a lot of depth to it and very smart. Audiences are just smarter. They know what they like. They were, they've been attracted to intelligence in both these movies. And so that was that was what I found. And and Barbie set off a great discussion, except for Ben Shapiro and I guess Pierce Morgan, about smart about women and men's relationships around plasticity, around corporate power. It was really interesting. There's all kinds of things to chew on in their feminism. Um, and Oppenheimer, obviously, so much stuff about compromise and um, and ethics and science and et cetera. Audiences like smart stuff, and they are smarter than us, the media, or the people who make these movies, honestly. I have to say, I find audiences always tell you exactly what the right thing to do is. I don't know. I think the average American mm-hmm. is of a average intelligence. Um, I anyways, know. the I don't know. I just, I'm always every, surprised. Everyone, you sound like a politician right now. I don't. I think they're smart smarter. I think they're smarter than you think. And anyway, I'm going to do my work. I can prove they're average, of average intelligence. Okay. All right. Okay. Anyways. I like them better than many people. Uh, my fails, I'm t- toggling between the Israeli parliament approving this judicial overhaul that hundreds of thousands of people are protesting virulently in the streets and which is what stopped it last time but they went out and passed it anyway uh saying they needed to correct judicial overreach they don't have a constitution with a written constitution in israel so they can't like lean on anything uh just really benjamin netanyahu really needs to move along um but he's passed it despite what is obvious um protests happening very significant including with the militaries protesting against it and then i don't know if the failure is worth with ron DeSantis pushing the idea that black people benefited had benefits from slavery uh, I just don't even know what to say about. And then he had Nazi What's imagery. He's going to change. He's going to change the name of Florida to X. Talk like, about something yeah, X, that just yeah. does not. If there was ever more reasons to like to check back when people ask you where you're from and you have to say Florida. Yeah. He yeah. wants to. Revisit, hey. He wants right. to like whitewash slavery in history classes. And for positive, I do. I, I was happy to see all the people in the theater. It's actually a really nice community experience. Yeah, it's nice. I agree. Um, I loved the enthusiasm, and I know you could say Barbie. Oh, it's all about consumer. My son was saying this about you consumerism. You are obsessed with Barbie. Just go see it, and then we can have a normal discussion. Anyway, we'll ah, see. I'm going to I, I like the to. community aspect of not just Barbie, but going to the theater. I think the Barbenheimer thing, even though it's exhausting. And finally tiresome, it eventually is great. I just loved it. I like the whole thing, and I don't care if it's commercial and sell tickets. I don't care if it's dressing up and buying plastic dolls. Very lovely little moment in marketing, I think. Anyway, as opposed to X.com. Anyway, which seems dark and glum and, again, smells like Confederacy. Anyway, uh, we want to hear from you. Send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show. Call 855-51-PIVOT. Scott, I am from Barbie. You are from Oppenheimer. You went on about Oppenheimer just as much as I go on about Barbie. That's just not even that close. That, that, close. That means close. you lack self awareness. Everything no. for you, we can be talking about AI and you reverse engineer it to Barbie. Oh, you'll you see. I didn't even have Barbies when Barbie. I was a kid because it has a spirit I like. You know, Barbie only, she only orgasms with a G.I. Joe. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Our producer, Lara, is just saying untrue Barbie orgasms with other Barbies. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. You'll see. Anyway, Scott, that's the show. We'll be back on Friday for more. Why don't you read us out? 
Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Taylor Griffin, and Travis Larchuk. Ernie Intertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Dubrow's Neil Silverio and Gaddy McBain. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Have a great week, Kara. Mm-hmm.